There are many great truths in this passage that we have read tonight. We would say so many that we couldn't deal with all the points that are raised in the course of one message. These are the things that the Apostle Paul is found speaking to the believers in the church at Colossae about. But we can't go far wrong, men and women, to say that the great theme throughout is Christ. And that, after all, is the subject of the entire Scriptures. We could say of the Old Testament, we have the preparation for His coming, the coming of Christ. We could say regarding the Gospels that we have the presentation of Christ, for He came. We could say of the book of Acts of the Apostles that there we have the proclamation of Christ. For you see, the gospel and the message of God's salvation is essentially Christ. We could think of the book of the Revelation and there we have the uh, predomination of Christ. Why? Because the Lamb has all the glory in Emmanuel's land. An Ethiopian He couldn't understand what he was reading one day on his way home. He was reading the book of Isaiah. He's reading that verse where it speaks about the lamb going to the slaughter. He didn't know whether it was Isaiah or someone else. And God's servant Philip, he came up into that chariot. He sat down beside him. And we read that beginning at the same scriptures, he preached unto him Jesus. You see, wherever you go in the Bible, you'll find Christ. For that is the theme. And in this first chapter of of Colossians, Paul writes to remind them of what they had in Christ. He rejoiced to hear that they were saved. He desired that they would know the blessings of their faith. And that in turn would mean that they wouldn't be easily turned away by the false prophets. And you'll note that he seeks to exalt the Savior at the very commencement of the chapter. For when he speaks of the Savior, he uses the full title. In the words of verse 2, you'll notice it. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something that is omitted in the modern translations and versions of today. They don't have the full title of the Lord in that verse. But you see, Paul is emphasizing the deity of the Savior. He is God. And from there, he reminds them of their inheritance in Christ. And it was something to give thanks for. He recalls what the Lord had done for them in salvation. And part of that was their deliverance and was their redemption. I read a quote a little while back of C.T. Studd. I'm sure most of you know who he was. Young people might not. He was a famous English cricketer. He played for England. But he was to leave it all behind. And the great wealth that was left to him in the state, he left it all behind to go to be a missionary in the land of China. And as he was breeding about God's redemption, and he was learning to understand exactly what it meant, he said these words, He said, I'd known about Jesus dying for me. But I never understood that if he died for me, then I didn't belong to myself. Redemption means buying back so that I belong to him. Either I had to be a thief and keep that what wasn't mine, or else I had to give up everything to God. And when I came to see that Jesus Christ had died for me, it didn't seem hard to give it up all to him. 
What a quote. This evening, I want to draw your attention particularly to the words of verse 13 and 14 under the title of the message, Redemption. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now there's three simple words as, as headings that I want to leave with you. Deliverance is the first one. Paul is able to remind them of the deliverance that they had experienced. These opening words in verse 13, they indicate what their position was. And it is not only them, but indeed all this evening who are outside the family and fold of God. He says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness? That's in the past tense. Paul, you see, is taking them back before they were converted. And as you think upon where these people were, the reality is that is where you are tonight. If you are without Christ, if you never experienced God's salvation, everyone born into this world, everyone born of Adam's fallen race is indeed in this same position. Paul in Ephesians he speaks the same truth. You turn back uh, just a book or so to come to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 12. He's writing to them. He says that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is where they were before the Lord saved them. They were strangers to God's grace. They were without hope in this world. Men and women, just try and grasp what that little phrase means. A man or a woman could be sitting in this meeting house tonight with no hope. We all like to think we have some hope. We have some hope of seeing tomorrow, of doing maybe the things that we have to do or want to do. But here the Scriptures describe the sinner as having no hope in this world or that which is to come. That's where they were. But then you have the glorious truth in the next verse, verse 13. He says, but now... See how different it is. Different tense. Now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. They were now in Christ, having been drawn even nigh unto him. The position of the sinner tonight is outside Christ. Whereas the believer is one who is in Christ. And everyone in this meeting, you're either one or the other. And that's how God sees you tonight. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. But for the unsaved, their position is even more fearsome and precarious when we realize the truth of what this verse is implying. They're not only out of Christ, but they're clearly under the control of the devil as one of his subjects and one as part of his kingdom. What is his kingdom? But the kingdom of darkness. Verse 13. It is in this old world that he holds sway. For the scriptures clearly speak of the devil as the god of this age. It's the plan of Satan to keep his subjects in that darkness. 
Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. He is the God of this world who hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, which lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The devil wants to keep you in the darkness of sin tonight, of nature tonight. What is his plan? It is that you would remain in his kingdom. It is that you would ever be in the darkness of your sinful nature. It is that that soul of yours will be bound and never be brought out of that darkness into the light of the glorious gospel. It is that one day that you will be for all eternity in the darkness of a lost sinner's hell. That's the devil's desire. For let's be certain of one thing. That's where the devil's going. He's going to the lake of fire. He will be cast into that darkness forever. And he knows it. And he realizes that his time is running out. And so therefore greater is his wrath. Not my words. Let me read them to you. Revelation chapter 12. And the words of verse 12. It says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. But I wonder, dear loved one, do you realize... You're a sinner tonight. You have a Christ rejecter tonight. This is maybe, I would say, not the first time you've heard the gospel preached. The gospel has been preached to your soul many a time, but you've rejected Christ. You've said, I will not have this man to rule over me. You've said, preacher, in your own heart, I'm not getting saved tonight. But do you realize that your end will be to the very same place? Because that's what we read in Revelation chapter 20 and the words of verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Whosoever. And if you have no knowledge of your name in the Lamb's Book of Life tonight, you've never experienced God's salvation, that's where you're heading. The same place where the devil and the false prophet will be cast. But although we see the position of the sinner. And Paul speaks of the plan of Satan, yet we thank God there's a power of the gospel here. For as Paul speaks to these people, they were those who knew true deliverance. God had delivered them from the power of darkness. Here were people who knew the power of God's deliverance. Although sinners by birth and on that road to lost eternity because of their sin and their guilt of breaking God's holy law and although they're bound by the devil and under his control, yet the power of God's deliverance was greater. And they were liberated from the chains that bound them. And Paul could especially rejoice in this deliverance. Not only because here were God's people who experienced it, but he himself had also experienced it. You'll notice the the way he puts it. That's why he has said, verse 13, who hath delivered us. He includes himself. You see, the preacher is just an old sinner saved by grace as well. We're no different. And the preacher needs God's salvation. And so Paul can say, who has delivered us. 
God had met him. He was that sinner. In his own estimation, he said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. And it was very evident that he was controlled by the devil. He was under the devil's power, for he was one who blasphemed and caused much hurt injury to the church of Jesus Christ. His zeal was to persecute the church, and he consented to the death of Stephen, that man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost and in power. He was engaged in committing God's people into prison, yet the power of God's deliverance was greater. For while he was on his way to Damascus, to carry out more of the same against the church of Jesus Christ there. He had done his work in Jerusalem. He was now going on to another town. The power of God was to arrest him in his sin and he was to know that wonderful conversion. Paul could look back to that day on that road to Damascus. He can rejoice in God's salvation to him. And you know, he's able to testify of God's deliverance as he did before King Agrippa. I want to take you back just to Acts chapter 26. You can picture him standing before the king. He's given opportunity to speak. And what does he speak? He speaks his testimony. Verse 13, you'll see it. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven. He brings him right back to that Damascus road. Oh, he had been persecuting the the church of God at Tarsus, where he was from, and all around that district. He was going on now to to Damascus to do the same. But he says, O king, there's something happened in midday. Let me take you to the words of verse 15. He said, Who art thou, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But arise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. He had been delivered. And he tells the old King Agrippa the very uh, way it took place, the very manner in which it happened. He had been delivered from the darkness of his sin. He had been delivered from the kingdom of Satan unto God. And God was now setting him apart and calling him to go forth and to preach deliverance unto those that were still in their sin. Tell me tonight, can you look back to a day? Oh, you might, you might not be able to remember the date, but you can look back to a day when the Lord by His Spirit strove with you and convicted you of your sin and stopped you. It might not have been as dramatic as that of Saul of Tarsus on the road of Damascus. It may have been, but it may not have been. But the Lord stopped you in your wild career and you were delivered. Delivered from the penalty of sin. Delivered from the power of Satan's darkness. Thank God there are many who can. The preacher included. But if you have not saved tonight, You do not know by experience God's deliverance to your soul and salvation. And we simply say to you in tender tones in the words of the hymn writer, God is able to deliver thee. He's able to deliver thee. 
and he can deliver thee now, even before I finish the message. I wonder, will you come and know this deliverance? There's another word that I want to bring to you from this wee text, or these two verses, and that is the word translation. Paul seeks to develop the thought even further of what he is bringing to these people. For the deliverance that God procures for the guilty sinner is expressed in the following words. He says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Now to fully appreciate what the Lord does and has done to these who were saved, we need to understand the true meaning of the word translation or translate. And this is where the young people will be able to help me and help maybe the adults. Because some of the young people, especially as a wee bit older than the primary school, you get up into the next stage of education and you have to learn different languages. Or at least it was in my day. I have trouble enough with English, never mind anything else. But you have to learn the language. And I was in the high school and thank Thank goodness I was in the third class down because the first two classes had to learn Latin. What on earth would you need Latin for? I thought to myself. But anyhow, part of the language learning, young people will know that, is what's called translation work. And I know all about it because when I went went to the Whitfield College, then we had to do two years Greek and we had to do two years Hebrew. And my final exam was placed in front of me. I thought it was the newspaper. It was that long. It was four hours. And it was three hours, 55 minutes before I got out of that place. Translating from Hebrew into English. And that's what translation work does. You translate from the language you're learning into English or vice versa, English into that new translation, whether it's German or Spanish or whatever, French, and all of that. That's translation. It's changing the words. And that gives you a start at least into the meaning of this word. But to give you some other examples where this word is used in the New Testament, it will throw light upon what the apostle means here. If you come back to Acts chapter 13, I'll give you a couple of verses just, and you'll be able to see. Acts chapter 13, verse 22 There we find the occasion. Paul stood up in the synagogue and he's preaching unto the people. And in doing so, he takes them back in their history. Takes them back into their scriptures. Remember, they had only the Old Testament. So he takes them back in the Bible, in the scriptures, to the time of the first king of Israel and Saul. And it was a time where God was to bring David onto the throne instead of Saul. Look at the words of verse 22. It says, verse 21, Afterward they desired a king. God gave them unto Saul, the son of Achish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave Testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. And you might say, preacher, I don't see the word translate. No, you don't. But you see the word removed. It's the same word in the Greek. When he had removed him. 
That's the same word that Paul is using even in our text this night. They removed him. They translated him. God translated him. He removed Saul. If you come again, I'll give you another one if you come to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 this time. And there we find a man by the name of Demetrius. And Demetrius is standing forth. He's complaining. He's remonstrating about the message that Paul was preaching. You see, the devil's people don't like to lose their trade. And here was a man who made idols. And as the people were getting saved, he knew all about a downturn, and he could see himself joining the dole queue if this sort of preaching was to continue. He'd be out of work. Look at verse 26. He says, Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. And the words turned away are the same words as translated in our text. The, the phrase turned away is the same truth, the same word. What does God is God's deliverance and salvation do? What do these people experience? Let us bring that all together. They had known what it was spiritually to be removed from the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of darkness. They had been turned away from the kingdom of Satan. God had removed them by the power of the gospel from the power of Satan and he had turned them, he had removed them and they had turned them to the kingdom of Christ. That's what the word translate means. That was a translation. That was the change that they had known in their life's experience. From sinners without hope in this world, they were brought from the darkness into the light of Christ's kingdom. And my dear friend, contrary to the modernist preaching, and contrary to the easy believism of today that says that you can make some sort of profession of faith and yet still do the things that you always have done and you can come into a church and make some sort of profession and go out the same way, then I want to tell you something. There's no such teaching in this text. There's no such teaching in the Word of God. Because God's salvation wrought a change. Salvation without sanctification has no foundation. You see, it's the very opposite. Because it says, therefore, 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if any man be a new creature in Christ, or any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. There's the change. There's a translation from what we once were under the, the control of the devil to what we now are in Christ and in his kingdom. And others see it. Others can see it. We know from what Peter states in 2 Peter 2 and 11 that the kingdom of Christ is one which is everlasting. There's no end to it as there normally is with kings and queens. It shall never end. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness, it will end one day, but the kingdom of Christ shall not end. And you know, King Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel, he had to understand that. He didn't exalt the Lord and the Lord came and the Lord caused him to be like a beast in the field that was driven out his fingers that were claws of a beast and he was on the grass but he came to a census. And we read in Daniel chapter 4 in the words of verse 34 
And at the end of the day, as I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. Listen to this. And His kingdom is from generation to generation. It's never ending. That day is coming when the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of Christ and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. That is the kingdom that God brings the guilty sinner into when they're converted by his matchless grace for every child of God tonight. They know that they're part of Christ's kingdom. He has lifted us from the dunghill and he set us among princes. Yes, the people of God shall reign with Christ one day. For Revelation 5 tells us, it states, He hath made us unto us our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I want to tell you that once God does the work of grace in the heart, he never undoes it. He doesn't bring his people into Christ's kingdom. And then sometime later on down the line, he throws them out of that kingdom again. You see, once he saves, he keeps forever. We don't do the keeping, we don't do the saving. It's the Lord. They're on saved soul. Don't let the, let the listen to the devil, devil's lies. He'll come to you and say, you'll not keep it, boy. Of course you'll not. But the Lord that saves, the Lord that keeps. What a miracle God's salvation is. What a measurable grace that is extended to us mere creatures of the dust to bring us from the power of Satan and to translate us into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And you'll notice if you have a marginal Bible there, the marginal reading for that is the Son of His love. Christ Jesus is the darling of the Father's bosom. You remember where he said, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. How many do you know this translation that we've been speaking about? Have you experienced this once for all transaction? Do you know God's grace in your life, which has taken you from being a rebel to God, to being a child of the King and joint heir with Christ? That is what God's matchless grace does for the one who hears God's effectual call in salvation. Men and women, I plead with you. I invite you. But as I said to you already, I can't see you. You've got to hear God's inviting voice by the power of His Spirit to come unto you. And that's why we say, while the Spirit is striving, don't turn Him away. Don't procrastinate and put it off to another day. For God has said, My Spirit shall not always strive with man. Now is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the accepted time. We've looked at deliverance. We've looked at translation. We're going to look at the word redemption now in closing. For having showed them from where the Lord had lifted them and where he had brought them out of their sin, he then reminds them of their redemption. Redemption in a particular sense is God delivering his people from their state of sin into the state of salvation. C.T. Studd got it right. C.T. Studd said uh, it was a buying back. 
And the sinner, because of their sin, was lost to God and far away. But God's means and plan of salvation brings the sinner back to himself. What is that plan? Notice the person of redemption. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption. It doesn't say in what. It says in whom. And those words link you and I, the reader, back to the person already spoken about in verse 13. Who is it? It's the son of his love. It's his dear son. In whom? It's Christ. There's only one who can redeem the soul of the sinner. There's only one who can procure our redemption. That is why Christ came. That's why he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men for one to be the Goel or the kinsman redeemer. And that'll take you into the little book of Ruth which is all about redemption. He had to be near of kin. He had to be willing. and He had to be able. And Boaz was for Ruth. But our greater Boaz is Christ. And Christ laid aside the glory he had with the Father so that he would come and redeem a people unto himself. Paul writes of Titus 2 verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. But you know the text not only shows you the person, it shows you the price of our redemption. It's through his blood. The chief term that the New Testament uses to express the idea of redemption has one meaning only. It is to release by a payment of a ransom. I have found a ransom. That ransom was Christ. The one who would pay the price. And that payment wasn't with corruptible things, or with the coinage of silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without spot, without blemish. That can only speak to me of the efficacy of the Savior's blood. The power in the Savior's blood is able to redeem the guilty soul, is able to bring that sinner from their sinful state in deliverance. It is able to bring that sinner from that place into the kingdom of Christ. Translation. So that they have acceptance and peace with God. That's the power of the blood that was shed for sinners. Shed for rebels. Praise God. Shed for me. There's value in the Savior's blood to cleanse the vilest sinner clean. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you know the power of the Savior's blood tonight? Oh, we can sing about it. But have you experienced it? Have you been washed in His blood? Men and women, young person, it's through the blood. It's by the blood. It's because of the blood. It's with the blood that the sinner can know God's redemption. Being brought out, bought out of that prison house. Being loosed from the chains that have bound us. And being brought and purchased unto him. Who loved us 
and who gave himself for us. And I tell you, it's the blood doctrine that the modernist hates and the apostate will despise. And just to prove it to be the soul in the modern versions of the scriptures today, do you see the words through his blood? They're left out. They've taken the scissors to it. And it's not in verse 14. But thank God that's why we use the authorized version. Because it's the closest to the original. In whom we have redemption. How? Through his blood. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see, is the price of our redemption. You see the effect or the outworking of redemption? Through his blood. It says, even the forgiveness of sins. What redemption God freely offers in the gospel of saving grace. The sinner tonight can know pardon from all their sins and iniquities. It's not a redemption which stops halfway. It is what brings the sinner from the depths of their sin and iniquity and from the darkness of the devil's kingdom right into the light of the gospel, into union with Christ that cannot be broken and into that knowledge that our sins which were many, our sins whereby we be just defied to be damned in a Christless eternity. God would still be just because that's what we deserve. Yet those sins which are many have been pardoned and have been washed neath the precious blood. And God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. What a message. Are you saved tonight? That's my prayer. That God, by his grace and love, would bring you the sinner. Now, from the prison house of sin into the knowledge of sins forgiven. And you might leave this meeting house tonight saying, I'm pardoned. I'm redeemed. I'm a child of God. All because of Christ and his work of redemption. And I tell you, if that will be so, You'll come just as you are and come tonight. Then there'll be great joy. There's joy in this chapter. Paul, as we read it, we can see this joy and and the praise that he has because he had heard of these people that have been saved. And there'll be great joy tonight, not only among God's redeemed on earth, but among the glorified saints in heaven. Prayers will be answered if you come. I wonder, will you? I pray that you will.